This podcast is brought to you by Whites Ferry Road Church. For more information, please visit WFRChurch.org. Well, we've talked about the last couple of weeks. First week, we talked about approaches to Scripture and what that meant in terms of uh, making decisions and about context and how important that was. And we talked about the Scriptures have a center of gravity. There are things that are more important than others. All truth is important, but not all truth carries the same weight. Remember, Jesus said, you left the weight of your matters of the law undone. The gospel is of first importance. That means there are other things that aren't first. We don't want to make them first. We run into problems when we do that. So all those things that have to do with about Scripture, and that we have to ask the question, what did it mean then and there before we ask the question, what does it mean here and now? And that sounds so simple, but it is really hard today because it's just you know it's just hard not to jump to your own situation so quickly. And yet we all do it, but we try not to. We want to try to go back and say, okay, what was happening right there in those churches when they got these letters, when they were sitting down? Remember, they don't have all the scriptures all at the same time like we do. We can flip and look and turn to different passages, you know. So when a church gets a letter and they look at it, what's it writing to about their their problems or solving their issues and who's writing it? What's the occasion of them writing in? And all that is very important because that's all they have, right? I mean, so the Corinthians are getting this letter from Paul. They're not flipping over to Titus or Timothy, you know, uh, and checking it out. They're not flipping back uh, to, uh, uh, you know, the Galatian letter or whatever. I mean, so eventually, aren't you grateful that God developed the Bible and gave it to us the way he gave it to us? A whole library, 66 books by the way, with uh, over uh, 1,500 uh, uh, different manuscripts that date back as close as the smallest gap of 40 years between the, the time John wrote and the oldest manuscript we have. But look, one of these days, I want to I do a whole... This has kind of propelled me into a whole other study, but I want to do a whole series sometime before long just on can you trust your Bible? Because there's a lot of good things about how we got the Bible and what God did in preserving it for us that's really good. But anyway, that's that's kind of for another study there. But well, you can trust it. And it was given to us. Uh, and, and so these folks are getting the Word of God. Now sometimes it's coming verbal from these apostles. Sometimes they're writing a letter to a church because, of, because you find out in the letter that they wrote them a letter. You know, Paul got a letter saying what's going on and so he responds to it and sometimes you're reading a letter it's kind of like you're hearing one side of a phone conversation you ever done that uh you can get things mixed up pretty easy can't you <laughs> that kind of thing happens to us too when we when we read the bible if the writer is writing answering questions but we didn't have the a letter that the church wrote to ask the question that's kind of what happens to us sometimes well, in Corinthian letter, we're going to look at the Corinthian section today of 1 Corinthians 11 and also 4 through 14 because this is one of the main passages that, that propose some difficulties to folks about the women's role in the church and about what it means uh, in 14 to, to be silent and yet at the same time in 11 you have women speaking and so how do you harmonize this and those kinds of things. And so we're going to look at that. Now, as we, uh, as we read this 
let's keep in mind a little bit the context I think helps us a little bit just in the Corinthian church itself in chapter 1 of course he starts out always thanking the church and about the gospel but he mentions that they have some divisions and he's going to write to really try to help them have some unity and uh, uh, through that he reminds them of the gospel and uh, and what it means and he says that the wisdom to do that comes from the spirit in chapter 2 he talks about having the Holy Spirit that, that you have received. And in chapter three, 3, he mentions these divisions and how that they are actually worldly. And he says, I wish you were more spiritual, but you've not matured. So now I'm having to deal with you like immature people. So uh, he mentions that. And then, and then he kind of firms up in chapter 4 about uh, the authority of apostles. And he, he, could have said, he said, look, I could have took money from you. Uh, as well as others. I did and I worked. I made my own way. But you had, there's responsibility to leadership. And other leaders that have, have some rights here and yet they don't necessarily enforce them. But, but you, you can trust them. And then he writes that kind of building his own credibility, reminding him of that because he's going to tell him some hard things in the next chapter. He starts right off in chapter 5. Look, it's been reported that there's some sexual morality with you that even a man has his father's wife. A, a man took his dad's stepmother and says, how crazy is that? And that sexual morality, that's, that's, that's uh, even beyond what the pagans are doing. You cannot let that happen. And if, he does, if that doesn't get challenged or repented, you got to mark that guy. You don't even eat with him. So he talks about handling some uh, sexual morality. And then he deals with other problems. That, so look, and a bunch of you in that church, this is another thing that caused problems. One, their morals. The other thing was they're uh, taking each other to court. They were, they were having lawsuits among each other. He said, you don't take your problems to the world and let them decide it. You ought to decide that among yourselves. But spiritual people can do that. You should be able matter of fact, even if you get cheated, even says, what? so what? You know, look, treat a brother right anyway. That's ultimately what happens. Even if somebody does an injustice to you, you want to come out and you want to treat them right and then deals with marriage and about if someone abandons you what do you do you're not bound you can't make people do the right thing right you know but if you're married stay married if you're not now this is interesting because he said one point in this he says if you're not you might not want to get married why because the times are fixing to get tough in other words persecution's fixing to happen and so and he talks about being divided that if you're going through a hard time and you're not married, you just have you But if you're married, guess what? You have a concern for your wife and your family, and that makes it difficult. Even uses the word divided, not in a bad sense, but your your loyalty in terms of you have to think about other things other than just yourself. And so he talks about that and how difficult that is as it comes on. Then in eight, he talks about sacrifice to foods, food to idols, and whether you can eat that or not, and about how to deal with your brother. If he thinks that's simple, and he's weak, and a weak brother is not one that complains, by the way. A weak brother is one who goes and eats it, won't say anything. He just gets, lets himself get kind of dragged into it. And so he talks about how to deal with that and and uh, and that freedom. Come on in, guys. Then he deals that that kind of leads him later on in the chapter ten to deal with the idols and the food that's offered to them and the Lord's Supper and things that all of a sudden come up there. Uh, 
And then in chapter 11, he's going to deal with, uh, with some things in the assemblies. And so one of the first things he's going to deal with is he's going to deal with head coverings and, uh, uh, and women. And whether they're praying and prophesying and men, whether they pray and prophesying, what happens? We'll come back and dig into that context in a minute. Then, uh, then he's also going to deal with the Lord's Supper. We, you know, which we, recently we did a, a whole series on it about what it means to be around the table and in your love feast, not not this, not disregarding and not respect, disrespecting your brother. You can't do that. You've got to be in consideration because this is a thing of one anothering here that's happening. And so he talks about that in, in, in eleven and in twelve. He talks about all the gifts you have and you can't use them in improper ways to make people feel bad. I mean, you can't. You have to use your gifts in a godly way. God gives them. To the whole church family, and there's a list that he talks about in, the, in these gifts. But you still don't want to use those to be divisive either. And then in chapter 12, talking about one body, that there's unity. Everybody in the body is important. Okay, everybody, man, woman, everybody's important. Right? It's one body. Now, different gifts, different talents, but there's one body, and so that's huge because we're never better off without a part of the body. Okay, I'm better. I'm a better part of the body if I approach the body with a good attitude and heart. But I mean, you I understand that. But look, but everybody in the body is important. Doesn't matter weak, young, old. You know, they're all important. That's why leading down to chapter 13 on this great exposition of love. You wonder why that chapter is right there, man. Because what they need is a good dose of that. Because he says, look, your gifts like tongues and all the prophecies and all those things, those aren't the greatest things. He says, look, i I got to make sure you have this love thing on right. Because there's abides, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. You have that great chapter. And then, because that that that's an overall attitude that has to exist. In whether, whether it's in 11, 12, in 14, he's going to deal with the assembly again about disruptions with tongue speakers and prophets and women. And, and what's overriding deal? Hey, it's going to be you need to love each other. And then even in, even in 15 and 16, he's going to, where he ends up dealing with the body, taking care of poor people with the collection and those kinds of things. Still, why? The message, overriding message is unity and love. And so that ends up being it. So that's just kind of a quick summary of the context. So as he's dealing with these, he comes to chapter eleven. This is kind of uh, this is where it deals with our particular <coughs> about women. And he says, uh, starting in verse two, I praise you for remembering me and everything, and for holding to the teachings, just as I pass them on to you. That's typically language out of passing oral tradition on as scripture uh, to other folks. And so now he's going to give this section about what I want you to realize about the head. Now, the word head comes from the word capital, which means headship. It also means source. Uh, it can mean authority. So you have like the source, like the head of the river. Uh, that's the source of it. You have the head of someone being over someone, that type of thing. And so uh, you have to kind of look at the context to, to figure that out. Uh, but I think it's kind of all all those things kind of wrapped up in one here. 
uh, and if you want to talk about this deal. Now, let me make you aware. When he talks about man and woman, the word for woman is gene, and the word for man is anir in the Greek. It's also, this is also the word for wife, and this is also the word for husband. There's not two different words. The majority of the time, matter of fact, in Paul's writings, when he uses each of these, uh, more often than not, it's husband and wife. Now, I went to like, I don't know, I don't know how many translations of the Bible there are. I just pulled up, you know, like gateway Bible verse that you search, you know, and just pulls up a list of translations and just went through. Uh, 22. 22. This is just in English translations. I didn't, I, my German's a little rusty. I didn't go to German. You know, you know German? Since you don't know it, I didn't figure it would really need to be here. <laughs> But, uh, or the Arabic, you know, the other translations. But out of just the English ones, 22 of them in this passage translates this man and woman as husband and wife. 22 of them. So in other words, this is not something I'm pulling out of one obscure translation somewhere to happen once upon a time. All right? Uh, and does it make a difference? Well, we'll read the text and see if it makes a difference. I just want you to be aware of the way the translators do it. And out of that, 22, even more, at least footnote it. And probably, if you have an NIV study Bible, you'll notice that uh, in the study notes, it'll footnote it and tell, uh, tell this very same thing. So, uh, let's just let's read this little section. I'm reading out of the New Revised Standard Version, and then I'll read out of the NIV in just a moment. And I, I don't know what most of you users... Uh, you may probably look at 2 3. Verse, uh, verse 3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the husband is the head of his wife, and God is the head of Christ. And a man who prays or prophesies with something on his head disgraces his head. But any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled disgraces her head. It is one and the same thing as having her head shaved. For if a woman will not veil herself, then she should cut off her hair. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or to be shaved, she should wear a veil. For a man ought to have his head, uh, ought uh, not to have his head veiled, uh, since he is the image and reflection of God. But woman is the reflection of man. Indeed, man was not made for woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. For this reason, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, and so man comes from woman, all things come from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper to woman to pray to God with her head unveiled? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is degrading to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair has given her given to her for a covering. But if anyone is disposed or to be con, uh, to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Okay, y'all go settle all that. Because whoever says, oh, this is a simple subject, it's not a simple subject. <coughs> Just in dealing with the head covering itself, it's difficult. 
and then you add in about the woman's role here in the church that he describes it becomes even more difficult so let's just talk about this now we've got the uh, uh, we've got the God Christ now look Christ God is the head of Christ right he says did you say that in the text right I thought everybody in the Trinity was equal. So how can that work? I mean, before we ever get to the man and woman, let's deal with God and Christ. How does that work? Well, they were equal at one time. They were equal. God, Christ did not consider equality with God. He became a man and said, today I have become, or God says, today I have become your father. Today, you are my son. So he stepped down from his position to take on human likeness. Okay. So somehow or another, what John is saying, he became flesh. And so is that when this took place? <coughs> or is, did that role always, was that a role always there? That's a hard question. I don't, I don't pretend to know the answer to that. I know this. Jesus never quit being God when he became man. Remember he says in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, John chapter 1. The Word became flesh made His dwelling among us. And He's the one and only begotten from the Father. And then all through the book of John, His whole claim is writing to cause people to believe who He was, that He is deity. The very thing that is condemned in 1 John, and when you hear see words like Antichrist, all that is about Him somebody not believing that he's God. The Antichrist were against him being God in the flesh. So I know whatever this subjection is, he didn't quit being God. Right? So what else could it be then? He's still God. But there's something different. It's not a trick question. I'm... I'm looking for help. You help one, you own, you know? You want to be your own kind. Well, they didn't give up their relationship. God thought they were all still one. And said, but Christ submitted himself yeah, to the will was, of God to do what was necessary to save us. Yeah, so there's a relationship that exists. Yeah. There's diversity in the Trinity, even at the same time, them all being God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Right? And even though they function in different roles, that did not make one of them more vulnerable, nor did it make one of them weaker, nor did it make one of them not be God anymore. And so I think the the, the I think the the idea here is the point that he's going to try to make to these folks is that while you have this relationship that exists, that that does not have to do with value. It does not have to do with being less than the other. Even though there's different function that takes place within that relationship. Okay? That's the best I can get out of it. Now... Now, whether that you know that whether that happened in the Godhead, you know, did that? That's kind of like also because kind of comes right to the same question: Did he have that submissive role of, of God being over Christ 
Was that an always thing or did that just happen at the, at the incarnation? Well, when men and women are created male and female, there's diversity. But did that submissive role happen after the fall was sin, where she all of a sudden it said her desire will be for her husband, or did it always exist from creation? I mean, I think it's a, legit, a legitimate question for both relationships. And uh, and I don't have the answer for that. I'm just saying it's worth noting. I think I it's think, worth noting. I yeah, think Paul makes a statement in Timothy. The innate nature, the way God created us, just like male and female for one another as husband and wife, he says that Adam was born first. God put the responsibility on man to be a leader. You're born first. That's by nature who you are, and your wife has been given to you to help make. Now, that's submissive. Now, of course, we know the fall where the woman was the first to see, but Paul will say that in Timothy 2, that it was the woman that was deceived and became a sinner. So, you read in Genesis 3 that God says, for your sin, woman, you know, I will give, you will have pain in childbirth, and, and I will greatly increase your pain, and your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. She was equal with man and everything, but when the fall went down, uh, now this is my, my, when the fall went down, God plundered, and that's where I think what a lot of the culture became where the woman was because of the original sin. But it, just in the innate process, God made man to be the leader. Doesn't make, in Christ, we're all the same. God doesn't look at outward appearance, He looks at the heart. And just by nature, God still expects man. You're formed first. You need to be the leader. Right. And so that's the innate. But I think the, the culture part comes about with the original sin. Of course, that travels through eons of years of the woman being split in the culture. You can go back and you see the culture here is very strong still. Yeah. That's what I, you know, my right. two cents. Right. Because, and I appreciate that, John, because I, th- I think that, that view has some le- le- legitimacy to it. That, uh, uh, the equality that existed even in the garden still had difference, differences. There's still distinctions there between male and female, obviously, the way he made them. But after the fall, then the verse out of Genesis 3 where uh, she, she would uh, desire her husband and he would rule over that. Actually, it, uh, verses, and, and uh, your husband, one verse, your husband will rule over you. <coughs> That's what it says in the text. Your husband will rule over you. And so. Uh, I think I think going right back there is is, is where he's going to, and uh, uh, so when he when he when that does well, so what does that mean? Well, I don't have any problem with it being husband wife because you got the very first husband wife that it happened to, and tells her that she's going to desire the role of her, of her husband. The problem is. <coughs> When we make a general statement that all men are over all women. Now, practically, just on the common sense side, I can tell you that's not true. <laughs> I, I don't rule over your wife. And uh, my wife is submissive to me, uh, but... She doesn't have to be submissive to you the way she's submissive to me. Right? So is there a general all men are always over all women? And is there a reason for this? Is it because she's vulnerable to being deceived? That's later on we'll deal with the Timothy passage on that. Because uh, 
I, I don't believe that to be true in Scripture. When you look at that, you, we're going to have problems. Because even later on, he refers to uh, in 14 about the woman being silent as the law says. Actually, it doesn't refer to her being silent. It refers to her being submissive. As the law says. What law? The old law. Well, what verse in the old law that says that? Well, she, the rule. The rule over. Yeah, because there's not one in the old law. There's not one in the Ten Commandments. Right. There's not one in the Jewish law. Mosaic. It ain't in there. Mosaic law. It ain't in there. So you have to, if it's in the law, you're going to have to figure, you've got to at least think the possibility is that he's talking about the Genesis passage. Now what you do have, always, is you have wives submissive to your husbands. You have that law from the beginning. But you don't have a law that says all women are submissive to all men. It ain't in there. I've looked. There are some women I would love to find that verse and show it to. <laughs> you know, especially ones that are smarter than me. Right? I mean, it's not there. And so I'm just so just kind of hang on to that for a minute because I'm not eliminating their roles. I just want us to look at the that the these scriptures honestly. Now, <coughs> law did not uh, the law did not require silence on the part of the woman. The law required submission on the part of the woman. That, that law he refers back to it doesn't require silence. It requires submission. Let's think about that for a minute. Because he says here when when either women or wives, whichever way you take that, pray and prophesy with their head uncovered, it communicates something that's not right. And it, 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 it destroys man's head or husband's head there, one way or the other. There's something that's lost in that. Okay? So... But he does mention this women praying and prophesying. Uh, women prophesying was not was not foreign to these people when they got this letter. Remember out of Acts even promises your sons and daughters will prophesy. You have Miriam in Exodus 15 and Micah 6 prophetess leading doing some things there among God's people yet she didn't violate the leadership of Moses and Aaron when she did but she did you have Deborah in Judges 4 and 5 who actually holds three offices she's a judge she's a prophetess and she's a military leader that brought great peace to the nation of Israel by her leadership when you read those passages, God was looking at the heart. She had the faith. You look at Barak and all the men, none of them had faith. God raised her up. God raised her up for that very purpose. Then you have Hilda in 2 Kings 22 and 2 Chronicles 34 prophesying. Noah dying, Nehemiah 6, 14, and some of you are saying right now, I've never heard these names. And you're thinking, I wonder why. Well, I wonder why. You know, allow yourself to stick it in your home box. Just allow yourself to think on, on that. Isaiah's wife, 
in Isaiah 8. Anna in Luke chapter 2. Philip's daughters, book of Acts. And then here, these women in Corinthians who are praying and are prophesying. So to say, to make some kind of leap that women were not saying verbal things to a mixed audience of people that included uh, admonition, because this is what prophecy included, admonition, comfort, encouragement, and teaching. All those things were wrapped up in prophecy. To say that that did not happen is, is to just not really take the glasses off and look at the Bible. I mean, it, that was going on there. Now, how does that go on and not violate the role of men and women? Because that's what you have in First Corinthians 11. So let's look at that a little bit more. <coughs> he says, if a man prays or prophesies with his head covered, he dishonors his head. Now, who's he dishonoring? Christ. Christ. Or... <clears throat> himself, which is it? I mean, I, I don't know, maybe both. I, I kind of tend to think both, right? I mean, I would think of whatever dishonored Christ would dishonor me too, right? But he just said that Christ is his head, and so this is going to dishonor that. And every woman or, or wife, and actually the word every is not in there, but uh, the woman who prays and prophesies with her head covered dishonors her head. Who's her head? Man. Is it man? Or husband. She dishonors her husband. Now that would dishonor her too, right? Would that dishonor Christ? Well, yeah, it would dishonor him too, okay? But he's making a point here about how she goes about something. Because he says, it's as just as though her head were shaved. Well, why does that matter? Yeah, I don't mean I don't want to pick on women in here who have short hair. But is it do I have to grow my if I'm a woman, do I have to let my hair grow long? <laughs> What's he talking about? Well, if a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a, a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. Now, why would it be a disgrace? Could that maybe be cultural at that time? Yeah, I think so. <coughs> because, look, it was a shame for a woman to publicly go around having short hair. That communication things about her morals as well as the culture around that wasn't good. Right? And so the now this isn't the Middle Eastern this isn't like the Middle Eastern veil that that we see you know today when we travel around the world. This is a head covering like you pull over and men did it too in other places of worship in public there. To even to the, the false gods in their religions, men would walk up and they would cover their head. And uh, and he said, look, you know what, man? So what he's saying, look, you're coming out of this, this culture around you. You don't, man, you don't do that. But a woman does. Now, why? 
What's he trying to communicate by having her cover her head? What do you think it is? Well, I think at the end of chapter 10, Paul says, says, For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that many may be saved. Follow my examples of Paul's right. He always says, Be conscious of other people's conscience. We, the way we act and behave is important. And even though you're a Christian and you're free, and we're all one in Christ, there are cultural things that come on, and you just don't, Hey, I'm free. Look at here. Yeah. You know. Yeah, just because you become a Christian doesn't mean you can just throw off all those things that communicate in your culture. You're sensitive to other people's feelings. And get rid of them. Right. Yeah. Those things have meant you're communicating something by those things, right? Now, nobody, obviously, nobody in here thinks that this passage is not cultural. Because if you thought it was not cultural and it was universal, then all then then you would be you, you women would be wearing a head covering. I mean, if you believed that this was universal, one time all time, and it was law, you put a covering on your head, right? But nobody came in here that way. So, yes, there has to be a cultural influence on this. That when she went without the head covering, it communicated something to those around. And look, not only to, not just to, to the culture, but to to the church family too. Because look, prophecy is for the brothers and the sisters. It's one thing he's going to say later on about prophecy. Tongues are for some unbelievers, but prophecy is for the brothers and the sisters. So he says, look, you're communicating something when you're doing this, when you're praying and prophesying. You want to be sure when you do this, you don't communicate that you're getting out of your role as a wife. Or if you translate a woman as a woman. Either way, you've got to do something to show I'm not out of, out of my role that God's called me to. I don't want to dishonor my husband in doing this. And so he tells, he tells them, women, put a head covering on. Now, they're praying and they're prophesying. They are verbal in the assembly. Regardless of the fact that it's not formal or may or may not be formal assembly the way we do assemblies in terms of comparison. You know, different cultures do assemblies a different way. But they're gathered together, men and women, and they're taking the Lord's Supper together and is already correcting some of that. They're using gifts together in the assembly and he corrects some of that. And they're praying. These women are praying and prophesying. They're not the only ones because later on he's going to deal with men prophets too. But they're praying and prophesying in the assembly. And he tells them to do it in a way that doesn't violate your law. Right? So just kind of hang on to that. By the way, when he uses the word, it's a disgrace for a woman to be shaven. Basically, basically, it's Paul said like this. Here's how you would say it, comment. If you're going to act like a man, you might as well look like one. That's basically what he's saying, okay? If you're going to take a man's role, then you might as well just shave your head and look like a man. Now, because in their culture, and he says, and he says it's a disgrace. Now, look, this is not a this is a disgrace because of culture. It's not a disgrace because of the act. Because you can wear short hair today and not and not be disgraced. Actually, you can guys can wear long hair and not and and not uh, not communicate their woman, can't they? I mean, look around us. I mean, you don't have to look very far to find long-haired people, but I don't think anybody's confusing them with a woman's role and how they do things. 
So because you're going to talk about later on the, the nature itself. But the word nature there is about the custom of what they had going on. It's not about it's not about mother nature or it's not about creation nature like that. This has to do with the culture that they're in. And it's not about whether a man can grow his hair long. It's not about whether a woman cannot cut her hair. It's about communication that I don't want. I don't want to dishonor my husband, and I don't want to dishonor Christ when I use what God, when the gift God's given me. I want to make sure I'm not out of line when I do that. And Paul writes and tells them that. Make, to make sure they don't get out of their line when they when they exercise the gift that he's given. So there's there's verbal things going on. This hang on, there's verbal things going on in the assembly, and he tells them the proper way to do it, even using cultural elements of it, to be sure and communicate to everybody that they're not getting out of line with what God's called them to. Okay, all right. So kind of hang on to that because I want to get to fourteen. And uh, well, maybe, maybe I don't. Uh, I thought I could do eleven and fourteen all together in one class because fourteen we're going to get the quiet word or the silent word, and I want to explain that. Will all y'all come back next week, okay? Because I can't get it, I can't get into fourteen and finish it for sure. But look, rest assured, let me say this out loud: there is distinctions in the gender. There are roles for men and with, with uh, women and husband and wife. And our culture is damaging those roles. And as a church, we've got to make sure, even, on our, even when we teach something difficult, we're not communicating this because of culture. And I'm not communicating this because of any other church anywhere else. This is just our objective study about what's going on in this text. And that means we've got to wrestle with some of these verses together. And that's got to be an okay thing. Alright? And so we'll keep wrestling and uh, uh, I appreciate your comments and input. Several of you have given me material. It's been great. It's helped me. Uh, and uh, I've given some of you material and you're probably saying, Mike, don't give me any more, please. <laughs> I mean, uh, but, uh, but together we'll wrestle. With so just kind of take this stuff. There is a difference in the and he's going to explain how to function in those roles, even in the assembly, and what that means to us as a church. And we'll, we'll, we'll address it later. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the day. I thank you for every person in here. Bless us, Father, as we learn together. Thank you for uh, your spirit that indwells each of us. May we depend upon him and his writings to further see how we can be like your son, Jesus. In his name, amen. amen. Love you. God bless you. This has been a presentation by Whitesbury Road Church. For more information, please visit wfrchurch.org.